Matthew chapter 6 today, even though this is Hebrews 2020 and it's increment 73, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Every once in a while, I like to do what I did in Revelation, and that's kind of capture the whole of the book that we're studying. I used to call it Rev in Toto, or we can have Hebrews in Toto. We want to hit some big ideas so that we don't get caught in the slog or the slow going of exegesis. But Matthew 6:19 through 21, my translation reads this way. Don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moths eat up, rust corrodes, and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasure for yourselves in heaven where neither moth eats up nor rust corrodes and where thieves don't break in and steal. For you see, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will be your heart also, literally. So at the outset today, I ask, where are you most invested? Hebrews, in its totality, is an encouragement for us to be invested in heaven. Christians think that they can be effective in their given community or nation on earth by being invested on earth. But we are effective for the good in our communities and nations on earth in the measure that we are invested in heaven. Heaven, in Hebrews, is where we have a better and enduring possession. That's the Greek phrase we're having today in the title. A better and enduring possession. And that's from Hebrews 10.34, that phrase. In heaven, there is, according to Hebrews 9.11, there is, quote, a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands and not of this creation. Not made with hands and not of this creation. Heaven in Hebrews is where Christ is, who is the high priest of good things that are to come and that are happening already. For those who are there in heaven, the spirits of justified people made perfect, and in some measure, those good things have come and arrived for those who, though still on earth, are invested in heaven. We store up treasures for ourselves in heaven by treasuring the good word of God, treasuring it in Psalm 119.11, letting it dwell in our hearts richly in Colossians 3.15. 16, make that. And it's the good word of God according to Hebrews 6.5. And so, once again, we store up treasures for ourselves in heaven by treasuring the good word of God in our heart. Notice heart and heaven. Where your hearts are, there will your treasures be also. We don't taste the good word of God only. We hide it in our hearts like a concealed 
treasure. We treasure it there so that we don't depart from the living God on a trek for treasure on earth, whatever that may mean. We let the word of Christ live, dwell in our hearts copiously, plentifully, residing and circulating in the rooms of our stream of consciousness freely. Hebrews, above all, is that word about Christ that we are to let be copiously in our hearts. Do you want to have influence on earth and be invested in heaven? Do you want to have influence on history and store up treasure in heaven? Do you want to, and this is always said, make a difference for the good in the world? Then treasure the word in your hearts. If you store up treasure in heaven, then your heart will be there also. And heaven will be in your heart. If you store the word of God in your heart, then your heart will be in heaven. Those who store up treasures on the earth are of the earth. Their wisdom is from below. Those who store up treasures in heaven are salt for the earth. They are not the earth, they're salt for the earth. Their wisdom is from above and it's helpful on earth, mostly invisibly helpful on earth. Why are people's moods and dispositions controlled, sometimes over a very long haul? Why are their moods and dispositions controlled by who the president is, for example? Because their treasure is on earth. We may strongly wish to have one person or another in the executive branch of our governments, but our lives don't consist of these things. Not if our treasure and our heart are in heaven. People whose treasure and heart are on earth say things like, family is everything. And the most important thing you can do is vote. Things like that. People whose treasure in heaven is in heaven are attentive to him who speaks from heaven. Hebrews 12:25 and 26, whose voice says the Hebrews PT is about to shake not only the earth but the heaven too. Those whose treasure is in heaven are attentive to him who speaks from heaven, whose voice shakes the earth and the heavens. Their family is the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the sons and daughters whom God is bringing to glory. The most important thing they do is to be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is saying. They love their earthly or their natural families, of course. In fact, with a love not even known by those who say that family is everything. 
For the love of God is poured out in the hearts of those whose hearts and treasure is in heaven. That love is poured out by the Holy Spirit who was given to them. Romans 5.5 The love of Christ controls them. In 2 Corinthians 5.14 Controls the disposition, controls the moods, controls the long-haul attitude in life. Oh, they vote in a nation like ours because to vote is a responsibility of the nation of our secondary citizenship. But they recognize that a single decision made in faith on any given day and in any given moment exerts much more clout than a vote. On earth, votes may be stolen, literally, by thieves, and ballots may be eaten by moths or disappear by other means. In heaven, every prayer, on the other hand, is recorded and every tear is archived by God and never forgotten. Do you want a world in which thieves don't break in and steal? In which they don't steal wealth that's stored in vaults or safes or 401ks? Do you want a world where moths don't eat clothes stored in closets, where rust doesn't corrode cars? Well, that will never be this world. What you want is heaven. Heaven informs us that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. Hebrews, the book in its totality, considered as a whole, which I like to call Latin phrase en toto, in toto. Hebrews en toto informs us that we are partakers, partners, co-sharers in a heavenly calling. Hebrews 3.1. Our citizenship is already in heaven. Philippians 3.20, for that reason, my next series, if the Lord gives me breath and time, the next thing I may teach is called Uranopolis, the heavenly citizenship, the heavenly city. Philippians 3.20, our names are already registered there and they can't be erased. Luke 10.20, Jesus tells us that's a cause for rejoicing. Rejoice that your names are in heaven. He even says to his disciples who were Pentecostals for a little while, don't rejoice that the demons are even under your feet and that you have power over them. Rejoice rather that your names are in heaven. No matter what happens on earth, we can always rejoice as 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, we can always rejoice when our treasure is in heaven. Happy are the people whose treasure 
and whose heart is in heaven. While we live and move and have our being in God on earth, we move about like Abraham did, in tents, without foundations. That's the whole thing about tents. They don't have foundations. They're not rooted and established permanently. But while we move around in these tents, and we're going to see, we're going to follow that metaphor a little bit today. While we look, while we live in these tents, we look for a city that has foundations. Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. Abraham moved around in tents like we do in this world, or like we should. But he looked for a city like we are, which has foundations. In fact, Revelation 21, 11 through 14 describes this. Revelation 21, 14 specifically speaks of 12 foundations that this city has. And on each of the foundations, there is a name of an apostle of the Lamb, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Toward the very end of Hebrews, he says, for here we have no continuing city. People whose treasure is on earth have great pride in the cities of the earth. In New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Pittsburgh, in Montreal, in Paris, in Lagos, in Beijing, in Mecca, in the present Jerusalem. But we whose treasure is in heaven, whose home is the heavenly Jerusalem, and that's what Hebrews 12.22 calls it. In fact, it says we've already come there in one sense. We whose hearts are there, we look for a city whose builder and maker, whose designer and architect whose planner and mayor, we could say, is God. Now, with this established in our souls, let's move on just for a moment. In this world, we are always moving on. In this ministry, we are always moving on. And that means that your viewpoint changes as you travel. If you're traveling on a train, you don't see the same mountain all the time. You don't see the same view all the time. Your viewpoint changes, your view changes, your vista changes, your horizon changes, and your position of viewing changes. That's normal. Otherwise, you ain't moving. With this established in our souls, let's keep moving. Because we live in tents. Peter famously wrote, Quote, I consider it the right thing to do as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by way of reminders. The idea here is constant reminders. Reminders singular, but reminders constant in Second Peter 1.13. He didn't want his readers to become the goldfish generation with lousy memories, and bad attention spans. So he helped them. 
He stirred them up by constant reminders of what is of greatest importance. Of him who is the ultimate reality. Of the prophetic word made more sure in the person of Jesus in 2 Peter 2.19. Whom Peter reminds us he was with Jesus on the holy mountain, he said, where he and two other disciples, James and John, were present, quote, in 2 Peter 1.17, quote, when Jesus received honor and glory. Please notice that. When Jesus received honor and glory. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We were with Jesus on the holy mountain, said Peter, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. And then he said this curious turn of phrase, when a voice came to him from the majestic glory. Sounds like Hebrews 1.3, at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. A voice came to him from the majestic glory, a cloud that overshadowed the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, saying, this is my son. God, who in these last days spoke to us in a son. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am completely pleased. Think of what Peter then said. As long as I'm in this tent. And he meant in this body, of course, in this human body. Now, Paul wrote with the same figurative language, and it's very telling to us if you would like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're on the verge of celebrating Veterans Day, and to all the veterans, I salute you from the heart. Veterans would understand this, perhaps better than most people. But in 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul wrote, We know, and that word for know means we, we know with an absolute certainty, with certitude. We know that when the earthly tent which houses us is struck. Now we strike a tent, we dismantle a tent, we take a tent down, whatever you want to call it. We know that when the earthly tent which houses us is struck, and this is again all going to be my translation, so I've expanded it and tweaked it a little bit so that it will be better for your understanding than most of the other English translations. We know that when the earthly tent which houses us is struck, we have a house from God. Not made with hands. That sounds like a familiar phrase from Hebrews 9.11. Not made with hands. Age abiding in the heavens, he says. Some people translate it as eternal in the heavens, but it means age abiding. It's kind of like, it's not the same word, but it has the same meaning as Hebrews 10.34. An enduring possession, enduring substance. An abiding house 
in the heavens. It's the body that wraps around us. Then he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, in this tent we sigh deeply in ourselves, longing to put on the house we have from heaven. Now, if your whole treasure is on earth, you start to groan as you age. You start to sigh deeply in yourself. You start to feel the weight of being in this body. You start to feel the wear of having been in this body. So you start to complain and moan and groan and sometimes say bad words because you don't feel that good. But that's because your treasure's on earth. When we feel this sighing deeply, this groaning, and sometimes even the pains of this body, we whose treasure is in heaven look to the heaven. And so Paul says, in this tent we sigh deeply in ourselves, longing to put on the house we have from heaven. So if you turn the groaning into a longing, then that's not quite so bad. The 2 Corinthians 5, 2. You see, we whose treasure and whose heart is in heaven don't just complain about our aches and pains or about everything else. We long for our house from heaven. We long to have it wrapped around us. If we lack this longing, then we're exposed, we're found out, we're doxed as having treasure only on the earth where our hearts are. What a gift then. What a treasure it is that we have in this heavenly homily called Hebrews through which the Spirit beckons beckons us onward, upward. A homily through which a PT, who's a lot like Peter, keeps stirring us up by reminder after reminder after reminder. In fact, the whole epistle, the whole discourse, the whole homily is a reminder. So let every increment of Hebrews be a reminder of heaven's reality. Capital R. Because heaven's reality is Jesus. Paul went on in 2 Corinthians 5.3. In fact, I'll read 5.3 three, three through 5 in my translation altogether. He said, indeed, when we put it on, that is our house from heaven, we will not be found naked. That means we don't just want to be unclothed from this body that seems to weigh us down. We don't want to just be naked. We want to be covered with something else. And so he says in verse 4, and so we who are in this groan within ourselves and feel weighed down, not that we want to be unclothed, but that we would be finally clothed, finally clothed to the point where mortality is swallowed up by life. And the one who works this whole thing out for us, he says in verse 5, is God. And I love this, what he says then. 
who gave us the Spirit. The one who works this all out for us, who planned this whole route for us that's going to end up in a house abiding in the heavens, is God, and then what does it say? Who gave us the Spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. Jesus said the Spirit will show you things to come. He will guide you into all truth, lead you into all truth. He'll show you the things I've said. He'll recall them to you. What I've said, he will show to you. What the Father says, he will show to you. He will show you things to come. He will give you a sense of anticipation. As Psalm 94 says, we anticipate seeing his face. And being like him, for when we see him, we shall be like him. You see, this spirit who's always with us, and I love the promise in John 14, 17. He will be with you and in you forever. Always. He says to you, as he says to me, I'm always here. Always here. Within and with you. So the spirit who is always with us and in us is the pledge of future world. So heaven and future world really are one. We must be careful to hear what the spirit is saying to us then. What he's saying to us, the churches. He's telling us to hear the voice of our shepherd. It's the spirit who says today when you hear his voice. It's not not the spirit saying today when you hear my voice. The spirit is saying today when you hear his voice, meaning the Lord's voice. And the Lord's voice, of course, comes through the spirit. This is part of the wonderful mystery of the Trinity, which someday we'll deal with again. So we have to be careful to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches because the Spirit is saying, listen to what the Son of Man, listen to what the shepherd is saying to you. My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice. They follow me. And I give to them eternal life or the life of the coming age even in the now in which they inhabit these tents. He's telling us to hear the voice of our shepherd. And not to harden our hearts as he leads us to pasture. Paul then went on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, I love this. So we're always confident. Leave it right there for a second. So we're always confident. He speaks just like the PT in Hebrews who says, don't throw away your confidence. It happens to carry with it. A great reward. He's speaking like the PT who urges us not to discard our confidence confidence in Hebrews 10.35. So we're always confident, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.6. We're always confident. Then he says, going on in 5.6, knowing full well. Oida, again, means knowing with certitude, knowing full well, we would say, that while we're at home in this body, 
We're in a strange land away from the Lord. That's comforting because though because just exactly as we recognize we're in a strange land apart from the Lord, we're headed for a land where we'll be at home with him. That's the whole point. That's where our confidence is. And then he says, and this is stunning, and this is really a big idea in Hebrews. There should be a kind of a long hyphen here, I guess, in 5-7. I wouldn't put it in parentheses, but I would put it in an, a place of emphases. He says, for we walk by faith. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of a twist to the definition of faith because let me just say this because this will come up in future messages. Is it we believe and therefore we see or is it we see and therefore we believe? Now, immediately you're going to say, well, first we believe and then we see. But then why did Jesus say, this is the will of my Father that you may see the Son and believe in him? Well, I know that's going to stir up some things in you. It should. We walk by faith and listen to this definition because I'm going to make it clear as time goes on, not probably in this message, but in ones to come. For we walk by faith, that is, by what we see with the eyes of our heart. Not by what we see with the eyes of in our head. Faith precedes what we see with the eyes in our head, but faith follows what we see with the eyes of our heart. Now the fool on the hill may see the world spinning round with the eyes in his head, but we whose treasure is in heaven see the one who has the world that's spinning around right in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's coming now. We walk by faith, that is, by what we see with the eyes of our heart. And I'll clarify that down the road. Not by what we see with the eyes in our head. Jesus said to Thomas, now you've seen, meaning you've seen now, Thomas, with the eyes in your head. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And he meant without seeing with the eyes in their head. But he did mean by seeing with the eyes of their heart. Because again, in John 6, 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that you would see the Son and believe in him. And that I should raise you up on the last day. So in John 20, 28, and 29, when Jesus is speaking to Thomas, he says, blessed are those who believe not seeing. And he didn't mean that you don't see Jesus and then believe. He simply meant blessed are those who don't need to see with the eyes in their head like you just saw me and the scars in my hands and the spear wound in my side. Everybody's going to believe Blessed are those who believe with the eyes of their heart before they see with the eyes in their head. Every eye in every head is going to see him, even those who pierced him. And to see him 
will be to believe in him. But happy are those, and that's why you see God, our Savior, is the Savior of everyone, especially those who believe. Meaning, blessed are those who believe without seeing with the eyes in their head. Well, we got a lot more to say about this. It rounds out the definition of faith. We walk by faith. We motor around on this planet by decisions we make in faith. By what we see with the eyes of our heart and not by sight, meaning not what we see with the eyes in our head. Yes, verse 8, he close, we'll close off this part of our exegesis or study today. Yes, Paul says, we are confident, all right, and courageous. Even while preferring to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Of course we prefer that. But that's not what's for us right now. But what is for us right now is the expectation and the hope and the certain knowledge of what awaits us. And the Holy Spirit helps us here. Therefore, you see, I'm, I'm coming up to where we are right in the scripture in Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, then he goes into the quotation of Psalm 94 from the LXX. Septuagint, the Greek text, 7b through 11. This whole passage segues splendidly, therefore, 2 Corinthians, that is, it would segue splendidly right into Hebrews, where we learn that walking by faith is of premium value. Let's see. The prophecy from the man of God in 1 Reigns or 1 Samuel 2.35. You say you're tired of hearing that verse. Well, it exerts a more sustained influence in Hebrews than we may have thought. Now, I'm going to repeat it many times. I won't repeat it as often as the pillow guy repeats his pillow commercial. Nobody should repeat that much. But I will repeat. Consider carefully that what Yahweh, the God of Israel, prophesied through the anonymous man of God is this. And it's what God spoke in the prophet. In Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God who spoke in the prophets to our forefathers. God spoke in this anonymous prophet to Eli. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And everything that is in my heart he will do. And I will make for him a faithful house. What's a faithful house? A house of people who walk by faith. And he, the faithful priest, will go in the authority of my Christ all the days. Now, this is a good demonstration of God speaking provisionally to the fathers. That is, he's speaking predictively of something he will do. Hebrews tells us what he has done. He has raised up that priest. He is building that house, a faithful house. I don't want us to lose the importance of the prediction that Yahweh will make for his faithful priest a 
faithful house. He says, faithful house. Wikon piston. Wikon, O-I-K-O-N, piston, P-O-S-T-O-N, in the Septuagint. As Hebrews 3.6 says, we show ourselves to be his house. We demonstrate and advertise and exhibit that we are that house in this world. The house that God is making for his faithful priest if we cling. Christians are accused sometimes of clinging to their God. Well, that's exactly what we do. Thank you for saying that. That demonstrates that I am of the house of faith, of the house of God, of the house God is building for his faithful priests. Thank you for accusing me of being a Klingon because I'm clinging on to my God. We show ourselves to be that house if we hold fast or the word is cling to the eschatological hope that is Jesus. And that part of that hope is the hope for being wrapped around with a house in the heavens where we are at home with the Lord. You got to keep that hope, cling to it. In other words, we show ourselves to be this house by being Faithful, And I'm going to show you what it means to be faithful and how that can't be segregated, separated, disengaged, or divorced from the word faith, faith and faithfulness, faith and fidelity. I'm also going to show you that, as James said, faith without works is dead. But let me tell you this, works without the motivation of faith are also dead. And they are dead works and we are to be purged from them it's coming down the road it's a big idea this faith thing it's a big idea a faithful house we show ourselves to be this house by being faithful or by being operative in faith Faith means, objectively speaking, that it's the substance and reality of the things we hope for already present with us. There's two senses in which Hebrews 11.1 has to be interpreted, and I think to be a well-rounded definition, we have to get both the objective and the subjective meaning of this. Objectively speaking, faith is the very substance and reality of the things hoped for in future worlds. Subjectively speaking, faith is the assurance of those hoped-for things. Again, objectively speaking, the second half of the definition of faith, faith is the documented evidence of things not seen or not yet seen, we could say. While subjectively speaking, faith is the interior conviction that those things, in fact, are meaning they really exist. So besides the definition of faith in Hebrews 11, the patristic theologian John Chrysostom, to me, is most intriguing, and I've mentioned early on in our series, in a homily of his own, he gives a definition to faith. It's, it's in his homilies, 21.2. He wrote this, Faith gives reality, and that's the word hypostasis, 
H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Faith gives reality, hypostasis, to objects of hope, which seem, he says, to be unreal. In this world, they seem to be unreal. But I love then, he seems to rethink that right within the sentence and the definition, he said, or rather does not give them reality, hypostasis, but is their very essence. And he's right there. That's the objective sense of what faith is. It's the very essence of the hoped-for realities. You carry that around. We walk by faith. We are moved and motivated in this life by the things that are hoped for being present with us in substance already. So we considered this early on in our study, John Chrysostom, which is kind of a commentary on Hebrews 11.1, and we will consider it again, and we have to consider it again because he's right on. Now, if the writer is concerned with faithfulness, how does this definition of faith come into play? That's where we're going to go with this in the future messages, maybe. I don't know which ones. It'll be the next one or the one down the road. But I would say that without faith being the very essence of the objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, those objects of hope remain just that in our perception. They don't seem real. I'll say that again. Without faith being the very essence of the objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, those objects of hope remain just that in our perception. They don't seem real. And you can't be too invested in something that doesn't seem real. They're unreal. But if the things hoped for are unreal to us, then how can we really hope for them, anticipate them, and expect them? So faith is the reality of those things that are hoped for. You can't separate. Somebody says, what's better, faith or hope or love? You can't separate that trio, faith, hope, and love. Even though it says love is the greatest of the three. Because faith works by love in a cycle. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so the trio is one, just like the triune God is one. There are three elements, separate and distinct, but they are one, faith, hope, and love. And so there is no faithfulness to the Lord, no faithfulness to God without faith as the essence of hope for realities moving the faithfulness or producing the faithfulness. Consider this. We are partakers of a heavenly calling, as Hebrews 3.1 says. We are being called outside the camp in Hebrews 13.13, 13, where Christ is. That's where he is. If your treasures are on earth, you don't know what it means to be outside the camp. You're dead on inside the camp. But to be have your treasures in heaven and your hearts there is to be outside of a camp. Election seasons, pandemics, and other things that are coming down the road reveal just what Christians are inside and outside the camp. Christ is there, 
But he seems so unreal to many people today. Here we have no continuing city. But so many times we seem to look at what happens in our nation or in the history of this world as the only reality. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we anticipate the face of a deliverer to appear. We anticipate his face as Psalm 94 in the Greek text says. So why do we act sometimes like our primary citizenship is here on earth? In the USA or Canada or Great Britain or Uganda. As partakers of a heavenly calling, we're being summoned from heaven to heaven. Summoned from heaven to heaven. So important is this, and so significant is the declaration that our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3.20 that I've been seriously contemplating a series that will be aimed at establishing us in Christ in such a way that our entire being is experienced much more in our heavenly citizenship. The series could be called Cosmopolis if we were going to use the term deployed by Lonergan and carried on by Duran, but I like the term Uranopolis which is a combination of heaven and city. It's going to be a series aimed at establishing us so that our whole conversation in this life and movement in this life is much more in heaven than it is on earth. Now, someone says you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, but I beg to differ and always have. If you're not heavenly-minded, you're no good for heaven or earth. The more you're heavenly minded, the better you are for the earth. You're salt for the earth. You're light for the world. So as I close today in this, I guess we might want to call it a word of encouragement. And if I do this series, it's going to show that we are more entirely in heaven than we thought, though we still function on earth in our secondary citizenship. It's not unimportant, but it's not nearly as important as our primary citizenship. Now, if I do that series, it'll direct us to live attentively, intelligently, reasonably, responsibly, and in love in a heavenly citizenship while we are on earth where we may also function responsibly in our secondary citizenship. And it's a distant second, let me tell you that. On earth, we function responsibly in our primary citizenship in our earthly existence by becoming salt of the earth and light to the world. So it doesn't matter who inhabits the hallowed howls of our government and how they got there, humanly speaking. Salt of the earth preserves a nation. Light for the world brings the gospel to a nation, despite 
whether the ruler is Nero, Nebuchadnezzar, or David or Solomon. And again, I'll say this, despite how they got there, because whatever machinations gets a person into a place of leadership, whether it's conquest or deception or true election by a popular election or a what we call today the elections that we have in our country in the electoral college it doesn't matter how someone gets in there if you're a citizen of heaven because god raises up kings it says in daniel 2:21 and he sets down kings he establishes them he removes them that's the whole point of what we're talking about here In a heavenly citizenship, we see whoever is in the leadership as someone God has permitted the rise of. And we live in a heavenly citizenship. We're invested in heaven. That's our primary investment, our primary citizenship. And that citizenship better be really primary. And the secondary citizenship in this world and in this nation better be a very distant second or you're going to be lost in the shuffle of things to come. And so we can only be a preservative influence on earth by becoming salt of the earth through an investment that we are making in heaven. Once we were darkness, says Paul in Ephesians 5.8, once we were darkness, we were so totally assimilated into the darkness of this world. Now we are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5.8, put that on your fridge. And thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll bring home this exhortation to the hearts of many for the glory of your Son, that he can be worshipped Indeed, as he is with glory and honor, as he is crowned with glory and honor. May we see him that way. May we kneel to him that way. May we bow to him that way. May we prostrate ourselves to him who deserves our worship. And we ask it in his name. Amen.